told him in the first service, I hope the sermon's as good as the bumper. That thing was awesome. That was really, really cool. Hey, I want you to know that by virtue of the fact that you are here today on Time Change Sunday, everybody here gets extra credit in heaven. Give yourselves a round of applause. And that losing that extra hour, that is just brutal. How many of you woke up and were surprised to find out that you had lost an hour? Let me just see a show of hands. Thank you for your honesty. That's awesome. Listen, there's, this is a judgment-free zone. Don't worry about it. But I think we could all agree today especially, the struggle is real. Matter of fact, turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face because you slept in and came to the second service. Tell your neighbor, the struggle is real. Now, I don't know what your story might be or what you walked in carrying this morning, but I do know that every single one of us knows the struggle is real. No matter who you are, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter who you know, the struggle is absolutely real. And I, I pulled some things off of the internet to kind of reiterate this so you know that they're all true. But all of these things come to us via social media with the hashtag, the struggle is real. So I want to just share these with you to let you know that you're not alone. Here's the first one. The struggle is real. Getting older is just one body part after another saying, Haha, you think that's bad? Watch this. <laughs> the struggle is real. Next, before I had children, I was so self-involved. I slept for eight hours each night and I showered every day. The struggle is real. I love this next one too. But mom, what if I get kidnapped? Mom, trust me, they'll bring you back. The struggle is real. Now, before we show this next one, <clears throat> I just want you to know this is, this is hard to watch. You cannot unsee this after you see it, but the struggle is real. Check this out. I'm sorry. I had to do that. <laughs> January 8th, 2001, never forget, the struggle is real. How many of y'all remember when that actually was a thing? Like, I've, I'm pretty sure I saw that in People magazine. Like, I was at the dentist office or something one time. That is just brutal. I cannot believe that relationship didn't work. But anyway, we all know that the struggle is real. I want you to keep that reality, keep that fact, just kind of locked right there in the frontal lobe of your brain and just leave it there for a second. I'm going to come back to it in just a few minutes. Right now, I want to take you back in the time machine to 1996. The Atlanta Summer Olympics are interrupted by a bomb that goes off in Centennial Park there in Atlanta. Hundreds are injured. One woman is actually killed. And the carnage would have been even that much greater had the bomb not been discovered by a security guard by the name of Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell found the backpack underneath a park bench and alerted the authorities, and they began to evacuate Centennial Park. But the bomb still went off. Richard Jewell initially was hailed as a hero, the guy who had saved countless lives by finding the backpack. But then his life was completely upended when the FBI began running a profile of who would do such a thing. And they jumped to the assumption that this was a lone wolf assailant, a lone wolf terrorist who had planted this pipe bomb in a backpack. And because Richard Jewell had been the one who discovered it, 
He jumped to the absolute head of their list of possible perpetrators of this horrific act in Atlanta. Now, we all know with the benefit of hindsight and a Clint Eastwood movie that Richard Jewell's name was completely cleared. He was absolutely exonerated from any wrongdoing whatsoever, but not before he had his entire life upended when the FBI announced to the media that he was a person of interest. Now, person of interest was not a new term that they coined for Richard Jewell, but this was the most public, the most prominent use of it to date because when law enforcement uses words like a suspect in an investigation, the subject of an investigation, those terms carry a legal weight that person of interest does not. You see, the, the subject of an investigation or the suspect has certain legal rights that they didn't want to ascribe to Richard Jewell until they had him dead to rights. And he remained a person of interest until the FBI admitted their mistake and said that he had had no part in planning the bomb, that he actually was the hero that everybody initially assumed him to be. You know, a person of interest is somebody who who usually has maybe some more information that can help solve a mystery. There, there are people who may be linked to the crime, but at the very least, they're on the periphery looking in. The Bible is absolutely littered with people that we would classify as a person of interest. The, the primary subject of the investigation of the mystery of the Bible is, of course, Jesus he is the subject of the Bible. He is the object of the Bible. But along the way, God uses some of the most unlikely characters to be a person of interest to help move his purposes along. Today as a church, we're, we're launching a brand new series called Person of Interest, where we're going to look at the lives of some of these unlikely heroes. And over the next few weeks, you are going to be absolutely shocked by who it is that God chooses to use in moving his purposes forward. We're talking about con men, murderers, liars, prostitutes, and even worse, some fishermen. He uses people that you would never have paid. If you and I were drawing up the roster of the people that we, God would use to move things forward, we would never use this cast of characters. Today, we're going to look at the life of a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob is listed as one of the patriarchs of the faith. He's one of the pillars of the faith. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, whenever God would identify himself to Israel, he would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And along the way, Jacob became this pillar figure in the narrative of God, in God's interaction with human beings. But as we'll see in just a second, it's actually amazing that God ever gave Jacob the time of day, much less the prominence in Scripture that he did. But that's exactly how God operates. He uses those who are available. Availability, most of the time in God's economy, is the greatest ability that there is. And Jacob made himself available. But along the way, it's an amazing run of deceit, of, of lying, of family dysfunction that you cannot even imagine, much less imagine God actually using. 
Now, Jacob was born to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. He was one of twins, Jacob and Esau. And before Rebekah gave birth to Jacob and Esau, God spoke to her and said, your younger son, Jacob, will actually rule over your older son, Esau. In this day and age, this was absolutely unheard of. And so, as you might know, when Rebecca went for her five-month sonogram, she discovered that she was going to have twins. But this is how the Bible describes this in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, verses 24 and following. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered she did indeed have twins. The sonogram was right. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. Is anybody else just a little bit scared right now? I mean, that's, that's kind of a frightening deal. They're, listen, I know babies are awesome, but I mean, when they're first born, they, they can be rough. But this, this one comes out all hairy. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac, their father, was 60 years old when the twins were born. Bless you. Now the name Jacob in the Hebrew language, it means one of these things. It can mean grabs the heel or one who follows or replaces. There's a lot packed into the name Jacob. It can also mean deceiver. Can you imagine coming into the world and your nickname is the deceiver? Just, hey, liar, what's up? <laughs> Keeping it real. Everything's cool. Don't worry about old deceiver over here. Jacob comes out of the womb grasping his brother's heel. It's like, oh, how many of you have a younger brother or sister? Can I see a show of hands? Listen, isn't it the truth? Sibling rivalry is a real thing. My brothers are twins. One's named Jacob, the other's named Esau. And I'm just kidding, not really. They're Pat and Gil. But Pat and Gil, our whole lives growing up, they're two and a half years younger than I am. Our whole lives, and, and really it was Pat more than Gil, but, but they, they knew exactly what buttons to push to get under Big Brother Mac. They bullied me as a child. I, the stories I could tell you. But... Sibling, I mean, little brothers and sisters. How many of you are the little brother and sister in the family? Let me, okay. I know you know what I'm talking about. You just, you just know how to do it. Well, Jacob was the same way, literally from the moment of birth. He knew how to get under Esau's skin. Now, I made allusion just a moment ago to the fact of this family dysfunction. Rebecca, their mother, greatly favored Jacob. Jacob was, was the great indoorsman. He, he loved to stay inside with his mom. He loved to cook. He loved to, to create around the household. He was, he was a phenomenal chef. Whereas Esau, Esau was dad's favorite. Isaac favored Esau. Esau, Esau, man, Esau and Isaac, they'd go out hunting together. They would come home and cook wild game dinner together. They didn't eat any vegetables. They just hung out. Isaac and Esau Jacob and Rebekah. Well, the Bible says that one day Esau had been out hunting in the field and he came home absolutely famished. He came home and Jacob had been cooking. Jacob had been cooking this incredible little stew that just filled the whole tent with the aroma of amazing food. 
And Esau walked in, he's like, bro, I am hungry. Help a brother out. And Jacob, again, the little brother, he knew exactly how to manipulate the big brother. This is what the Bible says. After Esau asked him for a bowl of this little stew, Genesis chapter 25, verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Your, your position as the firstborn son, if you'll give that to me, I'll give you this bowl of soup. Esau said, I am about to die. It, oh, the drama. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Isn't that the truth? How many times when we're hungry or we're tired, do we exaggerate how bad things can be. This is exactly what's happening here. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, I got to tell you, Jacob and Esau are hard for me. They're hard for me from a, from a number of perspectives, not just because Esau was an older brother like I am and, and kind of a jerk, but because it's hard for me to understand. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9 that God favored Jacob over Esau. And, and that's, that's kind of hard for me to take. But then it hit me studying for this message. I'm 53 years old, and I just realized this. Every time God judges, every time God makes a decision, it is always just. God never decides or judges unjustly. It is always the right decision. So when the Bible says that God favored Jacob over Esau, that's not God just playing favorites and deciding which chess piece he wants to move here or there. Did you see what it said? Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. He abandoned the honor of the firstborn son for a bowl of soup. Can you imagine how great did that bowl of soup have to be? And yet Esau gave up his inheritance for a bowl of soup. And then I remembered, the Bible says that anybody who follows Christ is a joint heir with Christ. We're, we're heirs, co-heirs, the Bible says, co-inheritors of Christ's legacy as the firstborn of God. And I thought, how many times do, have I sacrificed my rights? How many times have I walked away from the priorities of a co-heir with Christ because of my appetites, because of something that I wanted right now. Anybody in the room ever understand instant gratification? I mean, listen, I, I shared this with you at the beginning of the year. Julie and I started this, this eating plan called Whole30, and we, did, we extended it. We went Whole45. It was terrible. But we did it. It was, and, and I, I'm teasing a little bit when I say that it was terrible. It's just, it's just kind of like, no grains, no dairy, um, no fun, no taste. It's just kind of this, just things that you do. And it actually, it, it was fine. 
But man, when that whole 45 was up, when I tell you I dove off of the wagon, I mean, I, if, if, I, if I thought of something that I felt like eating at the end of that whole, I was on it. Pop-Tarts, hit me. Bread and butter, do it twice. Now, that's, that's kind of a, you know, silly thing because I, I've, got, I've got some room to give. I'm obviously twisted blue steel. I can, I can do that. Body fat of 3%. But my point is this. Our appetites can never supplant our priorities. Our appetites can never supplant our priorities. That's what Esau did here. He despised his birthright. And Jacob took advantage of it. He, he went on in Genesis chapter 27. This pattern of deception, this pattern of trickery and family dysfunction continues to repeat itself. Isaac is an old man. He's about to die. And before the, the father would die, he would pronounce the blessing on the firstborn son essentially giving him twice the inheritance of everybody else. And so Isaac summoned Esau into his room. He was blind, and he said, Esau, you, you know how I like the game that you prepare. I want you to go out and harvest an animal and prepare it for me the way that you and I enjoyed sharing it. And when you come back, I will give you my paternal, my patriarchal blessing. And Esau sees that now's his moment. He goes out to the field and he goes hunting. But Rebecca had overheard the conversation and she, she quickly summoned Jacob. She said, Jacob, come here, come here. Esau has gone out hunting for your father. When he comes back, your father will pronounce a blessing on him. But if you get in there before he does, he's blind. He won't even know it. You could receive the double blessing. As an aside, this is not the way marriage should work. This is not healthy family 101. But this is what they were dealing with. This is what was going on. And so Rebecca says, I'm going to put some, some goat skin with the hair still on it on the back of your neck and along your arms and hands. So when your father calls you close for the blessing, he will, he will feel the hair on your arms like your brother Esau. He will smell the, the great outdoors of the goat, and, and he will think it is him. And so that's exactly what they do. Jacob knew how to prepare the meal the way Isaac wanted it, and he went into his father, and he said, Father, here is the meal that we discussed. And, he goes, and Isaac says, who is that? He goes, it is your son. It is your son, Esau. And so Isaac calls him close, and he pronounces the blessing on Jacob intended for Esau. Jacob, realizing he has the blessing of his father, he leaves, and it's about that time that Esau returns from the hunt, and he comes in carrying a tray of food that he's prepared the way his father, he knows his father likes it. And he says, Dad, I'm here. And Isaac, the Bible says, Isaac begins to tremble. He says, what do you mean you're here? We just, we just had this meal. I just, I just pronounced the blessing. Look at what it says in Genesis 27, 33. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably and said, then who just served me wild game? I've already eaten it, and I blessed him just before you came. And yes, that blessing must stand. You see, to, to the Israelite mind, to the Israelite chosen people of God mindset, once a blessing is spoken, you don't take it back. 
That, that's the power of your word. That's the power of blessing. That's, that's the power of, of God's blessing. So you, you don't take it lightly. You can't just go, oh, sorry. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when we were kids, you say, hey, times 10, no backs. That's, that's what's going on here. And Esau is devastated. His brother has stolen his birthright. He has stolen the blessing of his father. And Esau's anger so enrages that he begins plotting to kill his brother. And Jacob and Esau spend decades estranged from one another. Both go on to, to amass really significant fortunes. Both become very wealthy. And late in their lives, late in their lives, Jacob, who is now married to Leah and to Rachel, Jacob, Jacob's men come in and give him a report that just on the other side of the hill are the herds and the people and the camp of his brother Esau. And Jacob begins to get worried. He gets a little nervous. He said, I've got a huge fortune over here, but my brother has always wanted to kill me. So, so Jacob begins to plot and to plan, to scheme, and he sends a mass of herds and people and money and treasure to his brother Esau, hoping to somehow tamp down the anger and the rage. And the Bible says that something really profound happens in the life of Jacob just before he and his brother Esau are reunited. The Bible says that Jacob has sent all of the herds, all of the money. His family has gone on ahead of him across the river Jabbok. And Jacob is by himself in camp one night. Look at Genesis chapter 32. In Genesis 32, the Bible says this. Now, this left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man, just a man, came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Ow! Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, what is your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Now watch this. This is an angel Jacob is wrestling with, a messenger sent from God that Jacob is wrestling with in this nighttime revelation. The angel pops his hip out of socket, but Jacob's not giving up. He's not letting go. And the man says, you must let me go for the dawn is breaking. He says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And the angel says, what's your name? Hashtag rhetorical. The angel knew his name. The angel knew that Jacob was the deceiver, the heel grabber, the replacer. And Jacob says, my name, my hip's out of socket. Can we deal with that? He goes, what's your name? He said, it's Jacob. 
And the angel says, from now on, your name will be Israel, Israel, one who struggles with God. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Israel is struggle. God's chosen people wrestle with him. God, it's almost like God knows, almost. It's almost as if God knows when you and I as human beings, as fallen mortal people, engage with him, there will be struggle. There will be times that we just don't get it. There will be times when we even maybe get mad. We will wrestle with him. Whatever you want to believe about the nation of Israel, number one, believe that they are God's chosen people. He chose them. He chose Jacob. He changed Jacob's name. No longer would he be known as the deceiver. He would be known as one who struggles with God and wins and overcomes. He doesn't overcome God. He overcomes the world. This is the promise of God. And I started thinking about it, and I realized we've never, never talked really about how to struggle with God. Because it's, it's a dicey proposition. Just for the record, understand that whenever you or I struggle with God, God wins. So it's just a good thing to keep in mind before you begin the struggle. But once you're in the struggle, keep these things in mind. Four things just to think about. And I'm going to give them to you in the form of an acrostic, R-E-A-L. Things to remember when you struggle with God. R-E-A-L. Number one, R. Give me an R. R. Respectful. Be respectful when you struggle with God. It's okay to struggle. It's okay even to get angry with God at a circumstance or a situation. But I would really encourage you to be respectful when you struggle. When Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Did you see what he was doing? He recognized the authority of the angel. It wasn't Jacob's job to bless God. It was God's position and authority that could bless Jacob. So being respectful is the first step of, of kind of stepping back and going, okay, you are God. I am not. That's where we begin. Having said that, I'm struggling right now. Having said that, this is hard for me to understand R is respectful. E, give me an E. E. Expectant. Expectant. Expect God to show up when you struggle with him. Not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, but because of who he is. When you engage with God, even if it's a struggle, even if you're, let's say that you're arguing with him respectfully, you can still always expect that he will do something with that. He will do something in that. Whatever you believe about God, start with this. God is love. He's love. So that means everything he does is good. He's love. So you, when you understand that, you, you begin with that expectation, then it's okay if you're respectfully struggling with him. 
A. Give me an A. A. A is adaptive. If you struggle with God, you will have to adapt. You can't struggle with God and stay the same. And it's our job to adapt to him, not his job to adapt to us. Never forget, we were made in the image of God. I think a lot of times we get in trouble when we try to make God in our image. Well, I can't believe in a God who would do dot, dot, dot. Well, instead of saying, maybe there's part of him that I don't yet understand. Maybe there's, maybe there's something in his character that I'm not aware of, and I need to adapt. I need to change how I think about him rather than expecting him to change to fit my concept of him. A is adaptive. You, you'll have to adapt when you struggle with God. And then L, give me an L. L. Learning. Whenever you struggle with God, know that you're going to be learning something. See, by definition, we're talking about a holy, infinite, morally perfect God engaging with sinful, morally imperfect, finite people. And so what that means is that by definition, we will never get to the bottom of God. You, you will never completely understand it all and be able to fit it in a box. If you can fit God in your box, your God is too small. You see, there, there's always more to learn. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, this is salvation. This is eternal life. That they might know you. That they might know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that, that we learn him, we, we know him, like we, we know other people, we, we have intimacy with him. It's not just learning about him, it's, it's learning him. A lot of y'all know that, <clears throat> a lot of y'all know that my wife is from Mississippi. You know that she's got this incredible southern accent you know that she's the smartest person I've ever known or known of so you you know about Julie I know Julie I know she's the same here as the, she is at home see I, I know her because I've learned her I've been studying 28 years what makes her tick what what is it that, that that she loves in life what is it that drives her crazy what foods does she like what makes her more likely to kiss me goodnight than not I've been studying I've been learning see a lot of times we know about God but we don't know him To know him means that you're engaged in a relationship with him. Jacob, the one who became Israel, 
the one who struggles with God, the father of 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel. Jacob, he wrestled with God. And he lived to tell the tale. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship of knowing God, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. We, we want to invite you to engage with him. Beginning right here and right now. In, in just a minute, we'll give you the opportunity to do that. But I want you to know, you don't have to pass a test. You don't have to, you know, have perfect attendance at church for six months. Six weeks would be great, but you don't have to. You just have to have a willing heart. A place to begin I want to ask you if you will bow your heads for just a moment and in this moment <clears throat> I want to give you the opportunity if you've never stepped into that relationship with God to do exactly that just right where you're sitting just to pray just to engage from your heart to God's and silently say something like this just say Jesus I need you I want to know you not just about you, but to know you. And so I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me. And I choose to believe that you rose again for me with the offer, the promise of a new life. And Lord, I accept that. I claim that as my own. And Jesus, in exchange for your life, I give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment with everything I have. I believe that you died on the cross. And I believe that you rose again. And I want to know you. I want to follow you. And I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just for a second remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Because this is sacred ground that we're on. The Bible says when one person, when one person praise that prayer, they, they turn for home, if you will, that all of heaven celebrates that. Isn't that an amazing thought? And so as a church, God's kind of representatives here on earth, we want to honor that and celebrate it with you. And so I want to ask you to do a couple of things, if you would, before you go, just right where you're sitting would you just open up the program that you got when you came in? You'll see there's a connect card that we referenced earlier in the service. If you would just fill that out, you'll notice about a third of the way down is a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. And that card just begins a conversation with one of our pastors, one of the folks on our staff to 
help with what's next because this is just the beginning. If you would, just you can take that card and fold it in half. And when we dismiss in just a moment, I want to ask you to make sure that you hand that card to one of our ushers, one of our hosts, so that that conversation can begin. Second thing, if you just prayed to begin that relationship with Christ, as our heads are bowed for another moment, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head as a statement, a statement of faith, statement in your life, but also in the life of this church. And know that as a, as a family, as a church, we honor that and celebrate it with you. And as you put your hands down, our family tradition around here is we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.